Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Denise Thomas, the VP of Operations and COO for Cisco's Meraki Business Unit, where she's responsible for inclusion, employee experience, IT, business systems, program management, facilities, business, and manufacturing operations. Before her current role, Denise served as Meraki's Chief of Staff at Meraki and Head of People. An experienced operator, Denise played a pivotal role in enabling Meraki to grow from 300 employees to over 2,000 helping the team navigate its high-growth startup stage through a successful integration as part of Cisco. Denise has held a range of roles at leading companies, including Uncommon Schools, Long's Drugs, CVS, TJX Companies, and Frito-Lay. Denise holds a BA in economics from Yale University and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm like practically not worthy to be on this podcast. I was the the dumb kid in school. You were the smart one. Welcome to the Second Clan Podcast. Nice to be here. My mom and I, my mom, we're on vacation um, and my mom is here and I, I, maybe I should have invited her in. So that way she could have a different perspective of who I am now. Uh, (laughs) I, I couldn't spell Stanford, you like Yale and Stanford was school always easy for you or did you work really hard at it? You know, I, I think it was a mixture of things. I, I, I worked really hard at the things that didn't come as naturally uh, and and flowed with the things that did. So I, I think I was always a diligent student. I wouldn't say that I was the hardest working student. There were definitely folks that did that and then some. Uh, but, you know, I'm a just inherently curious person and I like to kind of allow that curiosity to flow. And and sometimes that works when you when some of that curiosity gets satisfied by school. So I don't think of it as hardworking. I just think of it like, I was curious. I went with where my curiosity took me, and sometimes it took me to better grades than than not. That's amazing. Yeah. What um, you said that there were some areas that didn't come easy to you. What what were some of the areas that didn't come easy? You know, when I first started in school, I was like my my family, my mom and my dad are like science and math people. Like my mom has a degree in mathematics and then she has something that they then did where you got extra math and like so <laughs> that, that is who it is. Uh, she has a, like also a degree in chemistry. My dad is a chemist by by training. Yeah. Um, so like I grew up in a house where like we talked about math and science and, and there was not ever a thing that I could ever bring home and say, hey, I don't understand this. Uh, and I didn't have two folks in the house that could say, oh, well, I can work on that with you I you know uh, the joke that we used to have growing up is that folks used to come to our house to do their homework uh, and because my mom could basically answer any question <laughs> that people people had so I, I I think that like that came easy because it just was always around mm. um, it was the way that we talked about things the way that we looked at things it was the conversations that we had at the dinner table they were about math and and then my dad went on to be an entrepreneur. So then it was about business. And, you know, when you grow up in a house, if that's what you talk about, it becomes mm. easier for you to like conceptually, you know, understand those things. So totally. those things came easier. I think the things that came harder were like literature and English and, <laughs> <laughs> and all of that. They, those things that like, I, I can honestly say weren't getting top billing in, right. in our household. So they came harder probably just because I had less exposure to them. 
Interesting. It's funny. I, I remember trying to solve a problem years ago when I was the CEO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I, I proudly came in and said, I, I think I know how to solve this. I'm going to use calculus. And the guy looked at me and goes, dude, it's algebra. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're like some version of the math. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it was like the Simpsons. It's like, I am so smart, SMRT. It's like, oh, no, no, SMRT. <laughs> so what are you curious about today? What are you curious about in, in leadership and in, in um, where you are in your role? Yeah, you know, I think I'm you know, now operating in a larger organization than I had ever imagined that I would be. Um, when I came to, to Meraki, we were 200 people. Uh, and I think that's what, if we we're counting up everyone that joined when I joined. <laughs> um, and it had grown almost 90 to 100 people in the, you know, the previous six months. So it was still a really small place. Mm. And that's why I came. Like I had worked at places like TJX and worked at places like Frito-Lay that were these huge companies. And, and I just knew that like, I was a person that was going to be like a jack of all trades. And that kind of person is really well suited for a smaller organization than for a larger one. Right. Yeah. We're a little bit more siloed and the like. So um, I, when I showed up, I was like, ah, this is, this is the thing that I'm curious, like what I'm really into. And I think I still have this inherent curiosity around like, what does it take to get a group of folks that are committed to getting to some business outcomes? What does it take to get them to, you know, extraordinary outcomes in a consistent fashion, right? Always delivering more, always delivering better, always being more focused on the customer than anyone in the marketplace. Uh, it, like, I am curious about how you create a high-performing team that is focused on the right things and is constantly driving value and change in the marketplace. And that's a lot to be curious about. But um, I, I, when I go to work every day, I'm not just there to, you know, deliver X amount of revenue or to manage X amount of cost. I, it's almost like a little bit of a puzzle to me. Like, how do you get all these folks to be focused on one thing? Um, and hopefully that thing is to delivering a lot of value to our customers. So, um, so yeah, so I read a lot of Yeah, you books. really, you <laughs> like, I got like 12 questions already off of this. I'm vibrating right now. Um, and it's funny, you weren't good in English. You're extraordinarily articulate. So where, where, what have you found in terms of like always delivering? What, what is it that can help people always deliver? And then I'm going to go into like the high performance and alignment. And then I'm going to go into like the right value and change. But start with the first one, the, the always delivering. I mean, I think this, the clarity on direction feels really like important to that. Like, where mm. are we going? And it has to feel bigger than where we are. And I think a lot of times when folks are kind of trying to think about direction, they, they go about it in a really incremental way. Oh, well, we're here this year and they'll grow 10% on it, you know, and they're like, ooh, 10% or maybe, ooh, 20 or 30%. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of how people are trying to chart like what's next for their business is there's mm -hmm. these incremental motions and usually mm -hmm. it's being measured by like how much revenue you're growing or whatever, or how many customers you have, whatever. But the reality of the situation is, at least for me, and I think most of the people that I've ever worked with, that doesn't usually get people out of bed in the morning, right? right. Like they, they want something that feels like, you know, when I get done doing this, I will have done something that benefited either me personally or, or others. Um, and I will have sort of dropped in a little bit of change in the world um, by virtue of the actions that I took. So having a direction that feels clear, but more importantly, having a direction that feels big enough that folks can kind of see a little bit of themselves and their ability to contribute to that direction uh, when they get out of bed every day. So 
I think it's hard to do that um, when you have a lot of people uh, for everybody to be able to wake up and look at that direction and say, hey, I am motivated in these five ways or these two ways. And the thing that, you know, she's talking about um, touches some level of motivation to me. So I, I think direction feels important. And mm. then big enough direction. And is the big enough, critical. is the big enough direction kind of like the Jim Collins BHAG concept? Is that what you're talking? Or is it direction towards like change in, in, in the organization or change in, in the world? Or what yeah, is it? I think either one of them works. Um, where it just feels just out of reach mm. and just slightly impossible. Right. Uh, and then kind of however the, the organization wants to define that goal, because I kind of feel like all of that stuff kind of feels the same to me, uh, where folks are like, I'm not 100% sure mm. that's possible, but it's, it's interesting it's enough plausible. that I'm willing to take a swing at it. You know? have, you, have you been to Barcelona? Yes, I okay. have. So remember the Sagrada Familia, that's extraordinary yeah. cathedral. Yeah. So I talk about like the three guys making bricks sitting on the sidewalk a hundred years ago. And they asked the first guy, what are you doing? He said, I'm making bricks. They asked the second guy, what are you doing? He said, I'm making bricks to build a wall. And they said to the third guy, what are you doing? And he pulls this little sketch out of his pocket. He said, I'm building the bricks to make the left wall of the Sagrada Familia. Like it's like a hundred years. It's still not finished a hundred years later, but it's like they can see it, they get it. And, and it's a bigger purpose, but they're still making bricks. Yeah. And I think the ability, I think better, like what I find is that people that are better at leadership and folks that I, you know, I look to are folks that can, can do that third thing mm. um, and do it in a way that still makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm making a brick, you know, like I'm yeah. a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just some fanciful thing that we talk about um, that, you know, we feel like, you know, is some kind of crazy, like motivational speech from employees, but it, it's gotta be, it's got to be done in such a way that like, I still see my part in it. Uh, yeah. I spoke to a woman the other day, who's one of the key figures in the series, the vow. I don't know if you've watched the vow about the cults that um, the guy went to jail for. And, and I was talking to her about when does a company cross the line from being a corporate into a culture? Like when have they gone too far with culture? Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts around that? When have they gone to the land of cults? Yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, when is it like, like, is it doing the morning cheer? Is that too much? Or is it like reciting the core values at every meeting? Is that too much? Or I think when you lose sight of like, what the culture is in service to. So yeah, like, right? Like, we have a culture in Meraki, divined by a set of values. And those values help us stay, you know, fully connected to our customers and our partners, right? Like, mm. that's why we have them. And when we start to rotate in on a culture and start being like, oh, we have this culture and this culture is for culture's sake, then I think you become a cult, right? Like, right. It, it, it serves no purpose other than to perpetuate itself. And like, and I think that that's when you get to cultures that, you know, are, are, are not useful. They don't yeah, create yeah. value. Um, and they actually don't serve the people that are even in them. Like I, you know, and I think we have to be kind of be mindful about that. Like we, we, you know, we drink our own Kool-Aid sometimes uh, yeah. and we have to kind of check ourselves, especially when that is not delivering the right outcomes for the customer. And so I always say culture is like this thing that you're constantly changing. And the reason you're changing it is that hopefully your business is constantly growing. Yeah. Uh, and at every single level of that growth, you got to like rethink what, what the value it is that you drive to your customers. And then you got to go back and look at the culture and make sure that like the culture and the values that you have in the organization deliver on that customer experience. That's huge.
cherry or grape flavor Kool-Aid? <laughs> hey, you- uh, knowing Rocky, it'd be some like random esoteric flavor. <laughs> right. It wouldn't either be one of those and people would debate why cherry or grape would be a bad idea. Tell me, what's, what does Meraki do? Tell us just briefly what Meraki does, like the helicopter. Yeah, flight. so, you know, when you boil it down to its essence, like we're trying to make IT easier, faster, um, and smarter. For, for folks, right? So, uh, and when you sort of take that as like kind of what we're trying to do, like what that looks like today is that we have um, an amazing platform uh, called Dashboard. So it's a cloud managed platform. And on that platform, we have some of the core components of, of networking attached to it. So um, security appliances, wireless access points, switches uh, that really help sort of a business connect uh, and do so safely and securely. Uh, and also the platform also has attachments, IOT attachments, so cameras, sensors. So this idea that like, you know, IT and technology doesn't have to sit in a corner of a business. We can take IT and technology and bring it right to the core of your business strategy by virtue of making it faster, you know, easier and, mm. and more secure. So I, what gets me excited about what we've been able to do is that, you know, we've been able to take this thing, network traffic and, and, and connectivity, uh, marry it to insights and data, marry it to um, sensors. So things that are sitting in the physical world and they're like connecting all those dots for a customer makes it so a hospital can do mass detection uh, as a part of, uh, of COVID mitigation, that a, you know, a school can really sort of deliver on its outcomes for its students and closing achievement gap. Um, and that really resonates with me. Um, and, and, and they're doing it by virtue of like leveling the playing field for technology, like making technology accessible, making it available for all, because by virtue of making it easy to deploy and easy to drive insights from, you kind of take you take some of that advantage that folks that have had access to technology more so than others out of the equation and then the best ideas can win. So um, I think of what we do is sort of democratizing uh, technology by making it easier to, to manage and to, to use mm. uh, and to bring into the closer uh, part of where you build business strategy. But uh, if you look at the website, what we sell today, uh, is cloud-managed uh, IT solutions that kind of help a, a business, a community organization, a, a school grow. Uh, cool. All right. You've been with the organization for about six plus years, 200 people up to about 3,000 people now. Is that right? Or 2,000 people? Yeah. What, what's ch- like lots, I'm sure. What has, <laughs> cha- what, what has changed the most in terms of um, the organization where you've had to adapt and, and change and grow? I mean, how we get things done. Uh, is constantly changing. Uh, I think when you're looking at growth rates of, you know, probably about 20%, uh, like year over year. Um, and that's sort of after you got like that big hockey stick uh, that happens after you mm-hmm. join a thing like Cisco, we've still been able to con- uh, continue to grow um, at a rate that is hard to do on something that's a big number. Uh, um, and it's easy for your business to look really different uh, in a year with that type of growth on that type of number. And so that has been hard. Uh, and we see it in some of the feedback that we get from our team members where they continue to tell us it's, it's a little hard to get things done around here um, now. Uh, and we're constantly trying to take the sand out of the gears, but um, I think that has been a hard, a hard thing to scale. Like, 
how you take decision making that was pretty well greased at at 200 people and maybe even at 500 people and then you get to a thousand and it starts to feel really different. I think that journey from 500 people to a thousand and the journey from 500 million to a billion uh, is a is a tough road, uh, especially if you're not thinking about how you execute on that. How have you had to adapt the most as a leader through change? I, um, I've had to obviously, like everybody, got gotten a lot more comfortable with things always changing, right? Um, so I wake up in the morning and just assume that something's going to change. And, and that has made it harder as a leader. I think when I was, you know, I think probably the first 10 years or something of like being a people leader, I had these mantras and I would just go back to those mantras and I could lead from those mantras pretty securely. Uh, and then I really started to see that change. The harder the problems that I was being asked to solve, um, the, the larger the organization was, you know, the number of people that sit in a reporting chain that maybe don't even know me personally, um, other than what they see on a screen, especially now during uh, COVID. I've, I've had to kind of throw some of those mantras out and, you know, you know, it's what you hear all the time, what you used to do doesn't work for you anymore. And I've had to kind of get a little bit more thoughtful about what I say, a little bit more thoughtful about the direction that I mm. give. Um, I have to be really clear with folks when, you know, when we're ideating and when we're moving to execution, I don't want to be the person that asks for coffee and then people buy Brazil. Like it's, <laughs> it's a whole set of, different behaviors that you have to adapt at a certain level of leadership that, you know, I wish there was a real, maybe there is a book out there for that that says, Hey, when you trip across this thing, you're now in this kind of land and you need to start showing up differently. But I think that's the introspection and wisdom that comes just with being in the roles for a while, right? You start to develop that instinct and that sixth sense almost to just know how to adapt and change versus it having to read it and practice it. Yeah. Like the other day it was, you know, I, asked for um, some feedback from my team and, and somebody stepped up and said, Hey, I think people don't think you're listening to them. And that really caught me off guard. So I was like, Oh, okay. Like that's tough feedback to hear. Um, and you know, when we kind of unpacked it a little bit, I was hearing the feedback and then uh, I didn't ask the question that I would have asked if I was in my old people, if I had put my people hat back on, I would have asked much better questions than I asked um, when uh, in this particular moment. And, and I think that's the, that's the part of leading at a particular scale. You've got to figure out how to bring all of these things that you've learned and all these different experiences that you've had to ask better questions, to figure out how to be more present, to figure out how to be clear in the direction that you give. And, um, you know, I, give I probably, my, I have a hard time about it, but I know, you know, every day I wake up, I can get a little bit better at it. But I probably would have said, sorry, what were you saying? I was daydreaming. <laughs> <laughs> what were that you talking about? Been amazing. I was like, strategy? what? <laughs> is it because you just don't want to do what I asked you to do? Yeah. That's, that's not it at all. Like, it's, now, um, but it's good that you know, I, I really appreciate when people are willing to step into that moment. And when I ask for it, you know, I really appreciate it when people give it. So you have a crazy, strong, amazing energy about you. Like you haven't stopped smiling, very positive vibe. Has that helped you be successful or has success helped you get that vibe? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Chicken or egg. I mean, have you always been the positive, happy, energetic child and teen and young adult? I don't 
don't know if anybody would say that. Um, I, my, I worked with someone when I got out of college, a friend of mine and I started a nonprofit and the joke around the office was that like, they used to call me, nickname me Queenie. Um, and it was like short for queen of possibility. Hmm. I just, I have always been a person that thought about what was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we're facing something hard and, you know, folks are always like, here are all the reasons why it can't work. And I'm always like being like, okay, so, you know, if we can't do those things, what might we be able to do in order to move something forward? I, I can't navigate the world in a different way. Uh, and I, and sometimes maybe I think about it as a fact of like, you know, I am, you know, what I look like is, is highly underrepresented in the business world, especially at particular levels of leadership. Like mm. that's just the reality of the situation. And it's not because I'm short. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's because, you know, I'm black and I'm a woman and, you know, I am immigrant, all these things that like don't necessarily show up at those um, levels of leadership. And if I woke up every day and I didn't sort of have a sense of like, well, this can be possible even if I haven't seen it, like, I don't know how far I would have been able to go if all I did was wake up every day and, and think about all the reasons why not. So um, yeah. maybe that's a part of it, Cameron, is just that like, I don't have the luxury to not be somewhat optimistic. Um, it's a part of the equation that, uh that kind of moves me forward and kind of moves me through some of those barriers and some of the friction that comes along and in, in operating in environments that don't always open the doors to you. It feels real. It feels really natural. It doesn't feel like a learned skill or a, you know, it doesn't feel like you're standing on stage trying to be all something. It just feels like this natural, amazing energy trait. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Curious about, about your MBA and the skills you took with you from your MBA now that, you know, when, when you're, you're younger, I mean, you're not 21, but you're not 65. Um, you're, you're, wait for you to book in that well. No, but like, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're young enough. Well, what MBAs mattered when you went yeah. to school coming out with an MBA, but nowadays it almost seems like they're being biased against where people are saying like, there's too much theories, not enough experience, but I'm, I'm gathering that you graduated at a time when you'd kind of right at the end of maybe that era, but what did you pull from the MBA that you still use today? And what would you throw out? Where did the MBA hurt you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I will say, and hopefully this, nobody that works in Stanford's graduate school of admissions hears this, but it was a really hard two years for me. Mm. Um, I felt like very fish out of water um, with my sometimes with my classmates, but, you know, I remember like the first day of this was such school. a big jump going from Yale to Stanford. What are you well, talking about? No, it was like, I had spent five years working in a nonprofit and oh, okay. working in communities and really trying to like help oh, young yeah. people and all this stuff. Like that's what I was coming to the table with. And wow. Stanford does a really good job of like pulling together, you know, it's not just like ex consultants and bankers and stuff like that. There's like a, there's a diversity in the, in the pool of folks. And I remember pulling up to a stop sign and my classmate was in a convertible Porsche and I was on a bike that I had bought used for like 50 bucks or something. From a burner. Uh, yeah, just, just, just slightly different experiences. And I, when, I, when I finally got a car, it was like my brother was in med school at the time at Stanford and he 
leased a new car because his girlfriend was living in San Francisco. And my parents had given him this old Volvo station wagon where the interior ceiling was falling. Right. And I got that car right. and I had to get out of my, like go to business school, like, and, like <laughs> dusting myself off. Uh, so it, it felt hard socially. Like mm. I, I didn't have any money. I, didn't really understand like what people were talking about um, from a social perspective. I, I didn't I, like, I didn't do all the things that people do there. Like I didn't get on the plane and go to Vegas. I didn't mm. like, I couldn't have found the money to do those things if I wanted to. Mm. Um, so it felt hard, but socially, I think what I, what I got out of the experience though, is that same. I, I just got to be curious about a lot of parts of business that I had not learned about. Like I, I grew in my love for like organizational behavior by virtue of like going to these classes and really taking a step back and saying, Oh, like if you want a lot of people to be able to do something together, like how you actually structure it and like what that team looks like matters uh, and what kind of, you know, culture and, you know, behaviors and expectations you have around how folks treat each other also matter. Like I, I would have, I would have come to that, but I, at least then watch out of business school with like some core theories, if you will, or concepts around organizational behavior, some concepts around finance some concepts around these things that are not perfect in the environment that we learn them in business school, but they're, they're enough so that you don't have to start at first principles when you get curious about those things when you're doing your job. So Thanks. as much as like, they don't get my money because <laughs> I'm like, that was a tough, two years where I ate a lot of Dairy Queen and ate a lot of KFC to like mask the tears. But, you know, I, um, I walked out of there with enough conceptual understanding that I felt like I could really accelerate my learning when those things showed up in real life, you know? Mm. Oh, you're killing it right now. Um, and I met my husband. So that's, oh, nice. there you go. That works. You, <laughs> that works. um, yeah, your mom and dad must be really proud of you. Congrats. You, you were, you're running seven business areas is kind of what I counted at least, or yeah. seven thematic areas. Do you default to one or two of them that are kind of your passion? You know, if you could only have two, which would they be almost? Oh, you're asking me which of my children I like better. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. seems like a question I'm not going to answer. Yeah, maybe that's, um, that's not really, <laughs> it's not really what I mean, but like, is yeah. there, is, do you default to something that it's like, I think they are different enough that I don't. I think I default to an approach to those things, probably. Yeah. Um, I tend to say, oh, you know, you know, what are the what are the people dynamics here? Like, what are the systems that we have put in place to ensure that we can be successful? Like, I think I default to an approach. Mm. Um, that is a bit, maybe a little bit different than you know how folks would have approached it without having navigated the career that I have had. Uh, but I, I find all the areas interesting and I have just a different level of understanding of those areas. Right. right. But I, I think the thing that I'm always thinking about is like, I don't ever expect to be, have a depth of knowledge in each one of those areas. If I do, then I kind of think that I'm doing my job wrong. And that took a little yeah, bit yeah. of understanding when I started doing this job <laughs> it was like, if you get all the way in the weeds and you, you know, you can, you know, architect a business system by the time you're done with this job, then you, you have done this job poorly. Like chances are you've done this job poorly. Interesting. Um, so I, I mostly think about like how all of these things are connected and I'm more focused on the connection points 
between the the seven uh, yeah. streams that I have than I am, you know, you know, trying to get a really deep, deep, deep level of understanding in, in, in one. one of them. Yeah. No, I, so I launched a course recently called invest in your leaders. And my, my focus for years has always been that if I grow people, they'll grow the company. And I'm always trying to grow their skill set as leaders. So like, you know, coaching, delegation, time management, conflict management, all the skills that, that we need as leaders. Do you focus on any core areas with your people overall that you think are the, the kind of core of executive functioning skills, or are they all past that? They're all senior enough that is it more the connecting of really great senior people already? Yeah. I, you know what, I, I think at a certain level of leadership, like focusing on people's ability to um, consume and create change is always necessary because it's super easy to kind of, you know, say, Hey, I figured this out and we're going to just keep doing it this way or, right. Hey, this is kind of what has been working for us. And I think I can, you know, again, incrementally scale it in order to get us where we want to go. I think it's constantly hard for, for you to wake up every time you go to plan or wake up every time we talk about like, what are we going to be doing or how are we going to invest the resources that we have? It's super hard to always come to that with a blank sheet of paper mentality. And you have to train that um, and all the time. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's a thing that I'm always trying to push the team on is to sort of say, well, you know, if we had to start today, is this what we would have built? And if it's mm -hmm. not, then like, how do we close the gap between where we are and, and where we need to be? And, and it's not because we're not performing, like we're performing. It's just that I'm of the mindset that in order to get those extraordinary outcomes into perpetuity, you kind of always have to be asking yourself that question. Yeah. You don't seem to be corporate at all. Like, you know, <laughs> The typical, uh, you know, the corporate word salad and the bureaucracy. And you feel yeah. very, you feel very, um, you know, smart and way capable to run this, this organization, but also still kind of entrepreneurial. And, um, you know, is that true? I am really, like, I am really bad at all the things that people are good at in corporate environments. Like, and I have, I have seen myself, um, and I have watched myself flail out um, in in places where I was trying to build that skill set. I just I'm never going to be good at it. Um, I'm a generalist at heart. Um, I I approach work that way. I approach life that way. My husband is like she knows a lot about she knows a little about a lot of things. Like that's like how how I approach life. Um, the modern corporation isn't built for generalist at the end of the day. It's just not. Um, and I have been able to be, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've had leaders at Meraki that have recognized, you know, the power of generalist in getting things done and have been able to sort of leverage that skill set. I want to ask you a personal question. How do you, as an extraordinarily strong woman in a corporate world who makes great money and, and can literally you know, I'm sure you're, you know, you could tell your husband, retire, I got us, like, I'm just going to pay for everything, lead us all. How do you, how do you um, stay strong in a relationship when men have, a, have traditionally had such a hard time with that? How do you balance that out to 
you know, stay strong and own it and fucking drive like you're driving and, and also have a loving partner who doesn't feel threatened or, or is it just because he's already strong enough and he's like giving you wings and saying, keep going. I'm lucky to work with someone who, I mean, and live with someone, I should say, not work with, but <laughs> we're working on our life together, I guess I should say. And that doesn't come to the equation with all of that. I don't know how, you know, kudos to his parents or whatever experience that he had before he showed up on my doorstep. He doesn't come with that. Like, I took some time out when I had my first kid. Like, I had felt like I'd always been going and I have a terrible memory. And I just was like, I think I just need to be more present. And if I'm more present, I can remember like this experience I'm about to do, bring a person into the world. So I took off what I thought was going to be, you know, six months or something like that. And it ended up being almost two years. Uh, and I and I got to be with my son. My husband at the time was working um, at an investment bank and he just didn't get the time and mm. he wanted the time. Uh, and then we were on a vacation and his boss was making some demands that he just couldn't really stomach and he quit, rage quit. <laughs> I hope I'm not telling the story out of school, but he rage quits on our vacation, but doesn't tell me I don't have a job. Uh, you know, I've been at home. Uh, and when we come home, he's like, I have something to tell you. And then he tells me and I was like, well, I guess it's time for me to go to work. Um, and he just wanted to spend some time with our son and he did. Oh, amazing. Uh, and that just goes to like, I have like I have a partner, which yeah. I think it's Cheryl Sandberg, who is like, the, you know, marry the person. The person is going to have a huge impact on what kind of career you get to have. I have a partner that, that, you know, we sit at home and we bring each other business problems that we're having at work and we work on them together. Like, cool. uh, and you know, he's the CFO at a, you know, a, a small, um, a biotech company. And, and I, I love the fact that I have someone that I can talk to about my work and we don't, we think, and, and I also love the fact that like, I have a partner who takes a chunk of the responsibilities of raising our two sons. Right. Like I don't shoulder that on my own. I don't know how people do. He's much better at it than I am. So I'm lucky in that. How yeah. old are your two kids now? They are 10 and seven. God, you're still in the thick of it. Like, how do you, so how do you, how do you balance that? How do you balance being a mom and being a, a wife and, and being a great corporate leader and, and just getting to staying to know your kids? How do you balance time? And I can say probably up until the last 16 months that we have been at home, I wouldn't have given myself the right, like it would have been not as good of a report card. And I, and I, and I, and I think that's, I think people have to kind of know that like these things ebb and flow and, you know, yeah. you're not always going to be a hundred percent in all of these areas, but I, you know, I was traveling, you know, more than I had wanted to. And mm. um, I was really trying to think about work a lot. I was thinking about it all the time and I still do, but like, I, I have actually really appreciated this time home with my kids um, mm. uh, during COVID a, cause I turn it off at a certain time we sit down and we have conversations as a family that like we just never had before because I was rushing in the door, like right. grabbing the kids from my parents who I'm so fortunate. They live um, 15 minutes from my house and they are part of raising our kids. And that is incredible gift that I have. Um, but 
I just wasn't as present. And now yeah. we sit and my son and I, especially the youngest one, because he has a lot of interesting ideas. Um, and we just have like these conversations that we wouldn't have had before because I did not know how to make space for that and all of the shenanigan that was going on at work. Uh, I think I emerged out of COVID with far better boundaries than I had before. And some would argue I probably still don't have enough, but like but also just a really different relationship with my right. kids than I had before, one that is far more present. And I'm in a fight pretty hard to hold on to that. Yeah, good for you. That's amazing. How, yeah, the commute's nice right now too, right? Just like. <laughs> just across the hall. <laughs> a 75 out. second commute from the kitchen. We're good. Mm-hmm. Um, how was the the transition to go from working in the offices to being corporate for you or to being at home for you and the team, how did you navigate that? And then are you going back to offices? Do you know where they are now at Meraki? Yeah. So I, I, I took this current job that I have um, after we had gone home. Okay. So I have not been in the same room with the team that I lead during this entire time, uh, which is a lot to consume and then not to be able to rely on some of the things that, you know, you typically mm. do when you're trying to get to know people. Um, so it's been, um, and within a culture in Meraki, which was very much an in-office culture, like we came together, we were together, that's kind of how we worked. And that kind of went away overnight and we had to like learn new ways of of being. Um, and some of these things have actually, I think, made us stronger. Like we do more, you know, more documentation around decision-making than we ever did before, like, Mm. you know, sharing information asynchronously, like it we have to do it more than we did before. We're not like, we have to think about like who's included in the conversations that we're having. And before we would just make decisions in hallways and that, that did not like allow for the right stakeholders to be in the room. So we're still working that through, but like, I don't think it's been all downside to be able to work in a fully distributed fashion. Um, We're going to come back into the office in a hybrid way. Uh, You know, Cisco sort of leading the, leading the way around this thinking around hybrid work, given the solutions that we have uh, on the networking side, but also on the collaboration side. Um, So, you know, we're leaning fully into that uh, and, you know, folks will come back in a way that works for them uh, and then, and works for the team and with, and for the role. And so it's a conversation that folks are having with their leaders on how we come back into the office, but far more flexibility than we had in the past. And I think it's, it gives employees just a little bit more choice in how they work and what works best for them. And I can't imagine that that's going to be a bad business decision. No, I can't either. You've talked a couple of times about staying present. How any, any tools or systems that you've learned to do that? Any reminders that you give yourself or. I just have been trying to not multitask. I used to pride myself in that, like, oh, I can do so many things at once. And my husband is adamant that it's one thing at a time. Yeah. Uh, And I was always like, oh, you get so much less done in a day than I do Um, as a joke. But like, I have a role model around being present. You sounded sounded like like a Connecticut Yale girl there. It's like, oh. (laughs) Like, I I live with someone who is... (laughs) So incredibly present, like you bring him to a dinner party and the one person that never talks to anyone, he can kind of have them in fully wrapped conversation for like hours because he Uh, just has an ability to sit 
and just be with someone and just be really present. And I watch and be really present with our kids. Uh, and the things that I take away from that is just this focus on one thing at a time. And when I can do that, I try to turn off the chat. I try to turn off the this when I'm meeting with someone, like I make it really clear to folks, if I'm taking notes on the meeting, that that's what I'm doing. I'm not checking my email. Like I, I don't win every day at that, but like, I can feel it on the days that I have tried to do that more times than not. Like I have a better day. And I, and I think I actually drive more value to the business because I have taken the time to just listen and be present and bring my full attention to whatever's in front of me. Um, I don't have any tricks or tips other than like, I try to just turn off the distraction. Yeah. How about, how about right now as a leader, what's the one thing you're working on? Is there a, an area of leadership or business that you're growing or curious about? I mean, I think it's this idea, like, as I said before, like, I, like, I want to deepen how I listen. I, cause I, I think when you sat in like a HR, HR business partner role, which I happen to have gotten an opportunity to do at some point in my career, a lot of you know, like, you know, coaching leaders is almost just listening, like mm. closing your eyes and just hearing what people are saying and then trying to just ask the types of questions that allow them to kind of drive their insight a little bit deeper. Um, and it's something that sometimes I feel like is escaping me in how I'm interacting with others. And I've been trying to think about how do I call that set of skills mm. back um, into this operating role? Because I do think that like the same level of, you know, efficacy can be driven by having those types of conversations with folks because it opens them up to how do we better lead our teams? It opens them up to how do we have better like processes that we can build, better systems that we can build, you know, better leadership development that we can, you know, craft, better inclusion strategies. Like if I get better at asking the right questions, the business gets better at driving outcomes. And so I'm, you know, I, there's a, there's a coaching methodology, um, CTI, that um, I spent some time with uh, as a people leader. And, and it's a great methodology, especially around the coaching part of it. How do you hold an agenda for somebody else? And how do you ask the types of questions that allow for discovery? And um, very often in a leadership role, you forget that that's a part of the equation. A part of it sometimes is just standing out in front of folks and calling them to the direction that we need to go to. And some of it is like, how do you manage these peer relationships? But like a part of it is like, how do you coach and how do you develop and how do you do it through inquiry as opposed to like statements and, and stories? Uh, and, and that's a powerful part of leading mm. others that feels like it's, it's slipping away from me that I'm trying to like grab back onto. So that's the thing that I'm trying to put my attention back on. All right. So my final question, I want you to coach the 22 year old Denise Thomas. Uh, I want you to lean back to when you were just kind of graduating school and you're getting ready to start off in your business career pre MBA. What advice would you give yourself back then? Or what questions would you get? Would you ask yourself to, to help grow you? I mean, I, I guess I would encourage myself to pay attention to the things that feel easy, like that feel like and flow and don't assume that everybody can do those things. Yeah. I think for a really long time, I would sort of be like, you know, shoo that away and sort of say, oh, everybody can do that. But it, it's not true that there are, you know, gifts that people have that are just inherently a part of who they are. Uh, and 
the better we are at honing those, those gifts and bringing them to the problems that we have or the opportunities that we have, the more that we can live a life that feels a bit more in flow. And I believe that if you do that, you end up with better outcomes for yourself personally, and also for whatever it is that you're working on, right? And then I think the second piece of advice, if I can give myself two pieces of advice is, is also like, be in the rooms that you're in. Like, I think for a very early part of my career, I would end up in these places where I was like, Oof, I really shouldn't be here. And I don't know how I got here. And, you know, like, and, and people would say, well, you know, I think that you would be good at like helping us think about this and whatever. And then I would have to like, I would have to convince myself of mm. like the validity of my place in that space by virtue of what other people told me. Mm. Um, and, and I think what I'm still not good at, but getting better at is sort of saying, I own, I own the spaces that I'm in. Like if I am in a room, it is because like the, the collection of things that I bring to this equation or to the conversation are, are valuable and I should start acting like it. Um, and it took a while <laughs> to, to kind of get that going. But I think if you start that earlier, there's just so much more impact that you can have if you're not constantly like second guessing whether or not um, you, you have a role to play. So um, I've, you know, I've probably taken up a bit more space um, than I have in the past. Um, I've tried to kind of be out and about a bit more than maybe I have had, have been in the past. Um, but, but I have been trying to lean in, leaning into taking up a bit more space. And I, and I think if I could have given myself that feedback earlier on, maybe I would not have said no to things that I was fully capable of doing just because I didn't believe it. So. Well, fuck you're leaned in big time. I'm, I, I, <laughs> I really love that you went back to that one, but also the flow because I'd written down the flow because you mentioned it twice as we first started. It's almost like you had the golden thread pre-thought out for me because you, you oh. wrapped up with that too. Uh, Denise Thomas, the VP operations and COO for Meraki. Thank you so much for being in the right room today and sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Really, really appreciate the time. No, well, thanks for having me. This was, this was fun and you made it easy. So thanks. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.